Um, Psalm 22 is David's expression of lament during his own time of suffering, but it's also an amazing prophecy of what was going to happen to the Messiah. It's a detailed description of what Jesus went through on the cross, both in terms of what happened to him physically, but also what he went through emotionally as it occurred. So let's look at the first half of verse 1 of Psalm 22, the words that Jesus cried out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, asking, crying, yelling to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The moral separation and deep pain experienced by the Godhead at this moment is beyond our comprehension. But God prepared this psalm through the mouth of David a thousand years beforehand, not only as a prophecy to foreshadow in agonizing detail what Jesus would experience, but also, I believe, to prepare Jesus for it, to give him some comfort in the midst of it. Have you ever read a particular Bible passage and felt this verse is speaking to me, God is speaking to me through this verse? It was written for me at this moment. Well, that's exactly how this psalm, I believe, was for Jesus during his suffering. It was written specifically for him for that moment, every detail of action and feeling. I believe this gave Jesus great consolation in the midst of that agony. Jesus doesn't quote the second half of the verse, but without doubt he felt it. It says, this is uh, Psalm 22, verse 1, the second half, Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? To Jesus at that moment, God the Father felt far, distant, silent. The Father and the Son, who had been in perfect union of love and fellowship, all of a sudden were distant from one another. This is an amazing event, probably the only time ever in infinity, in infinite history that this ever happened. Let's look at verse 2 of the psalm. My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. David tells us that he was not silent at night, but he found no rest. In the same way, Jesus' request was denied that Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times he begged God for the cup of suffering to pass from him, but God was silent. There was no rescue. And now on Friday afternoon on the cross, he is groaning in the daytime, and there's still no answer from God. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. David remembers that God is the Holy One, the one who has rescued his people in times past. And now, in the greatest of all ironies, the Holy One is hanging on the cross precisely in order to rescue his people from their sin and eternal destruction. So, verses 3 and 4 of the psalm are reflecting what's happening on the cross. The Holy One is suffering and in the process is delivering his people. And look at verse 5. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. Jesus cries out from the cross and is not set free, precisely so that we may be set free. Here the Holy One is not rescued and in the process is actually rescuing us, the people who trust in him. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. How Jesus must have felt this verse. He was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, condemned by his own people, mocked, beaten with the Roman whip, nailed to a piece of wood and abandoned by God, left to hang there. I think anyone would feel like a worm at that point. 
Look at verses 7 and 8. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. These verses parallel exactly what happened to Jesus in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44. I know we just read the whole chapter, but what I want you to do is I'm going to read just those six verses from Matthew 27. And if you can keep your eyes on verses 7 and 8 of the psalm while I read from Matthew. And I think you'll be amazed at the similarities of what, what was said by the people near the cross and what, ha- what was said in the psalm. So just keep your eyes on verses um, 7 and 8 of the psalm. I'm going to read Matthew 27 starting at 39. So this is Matthew. Those who passed by were yelling insults, insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Okay, so think about this. The chief priests, scribes, and elders were actually speaking almost verbatim from Psalm 22. Did any of them realize this? I would imagine they knew the Psalms very well. I'm sure they had big chunks of the Psalms by memory. But I guess it didn't occur to them, or maybe it did, I don't know, that they were actually fulfilling the words of this Psalm, but not in a good way. I've often wondered, did Jesus' outcry of verse 1 of the Psalm bring these scriptures to their minds? Who knows? Maybe they left the crucifixion site by that point, since the Bible tells us that the outcry occurred at 3 p.m., which was later in the, in, the, in the day. Look at verses 9 through 11 of the psalm. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me, because distress is near and there's no one to help. Like David, Jesus knows the deep security of a life lived before the one true God. He was cast upon God even before his birth to the Virgin Mary. Jesus must have contemplated, like David, his close fellowship with God from even before his birth. But now, at the final hour when the suffering is greatest, God is far. And there is no one to help. Was Jesus feeling these verses? I think they accurately describe what he was enduring. Look at verses 12 and 13. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. Are the strong bulls and lions the Roman soldiers, the chief priests and elders, and many others passing by the cross who hurled insults at Jesus? The bulls opening their mouths against him and the roaring of the lions represent the horrible verbal abuse that Jesus had to endure all afternoon while he hung there. Look at verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. Are not these verses perfect descriptions of what Jesus was enduring? His bones were separated on the cross when they pulled his body apart to nail him there. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth in extreme thirst. His strength was broken. He was completely drained, and he was certainly at death's door. 
Look at verses 16 through 18. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. The description that David gives of his own suffering is fascinating in how it depicts Jesus' experience of the Roman crucifixion, the piercing of the hands and the feet, the soldiers dividing up the garments and casting lots for them people staring at his naked body on display on the cross. Jesus endured all this exactly as David described a thousand years previous. Verses 19 through 20, But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. The final words of Jesus on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God heard that prayer, and Jesus was finally delivered from his sufferings through his death. After his resurrection, he fulfilled verse 22 of the psalm by proclaiming God's name to the disciples in Galilee. We won't turn there now, but you can find that event in Matthew chapter 28, where he gives them the great commission. So the resurrection fulfills the hopeful and victorious outcome of the psalm, specifically in verse 24. Let's look at verse 24 of the psalm. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for his help, for help. God ultimately listened to Jesus' cry for help. He raised him from the dead and gave him the victory. Jesus knew that this psalm had a victorious ending and that he would be restored to the Father. He knew that God would finally hear his cries and answer him. I believe this gave Jesus great comfort while he hung there. So let me ask you, do you ever feel like God has abandoned you, given up on you, or forgotten about you? Jesus felt the anguish and pain of abandonment. He experienced God turning away from him, denying him, being silent to him. Jesus knows those feelings, and that's why we can go to him for comfort when we experience those feelings and are tempted to give up. So when you look at the cross, see the final outcome, see the victory. See God accepting you and not abandoning you, all because he did abandon Jesus as he hung on the cross. Hebrews 13.5 promises us, I will never leave you or nor forsake you. Christ was forsaken on the cross that day, 2,000 years ago, so that we who believe in him will never be forsaken. Thanks, Brian. Um, So... In Psalm 22, we see a picture of um, a prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion. Now we're going to turn to uh, the 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we look at the cross from the other side, looking back um, at what had happened um, those years ago and seeing what what the word of the cross means for us today. What does it mean for the world? Uh, What does it mean to us who are being saved? So please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll read through to verse 25. 
page 1011. Starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So you, you may have heard or studied this passage in 1 Corinthians where it calls the cross foolish or maybe even scandalous. But what does this really mean? What does this statement really mean? And what does it mean for us who put our faith in that cross? Does that mean we're fools? So in the text, we see God's power and his wisdom behind the cross. The cross was an instrument of execution, as we read in Matthew 27. It was a symbol of ultimate condemnation. But its effect goes far beyond its application as just a crude instrument of death. The message of the cross is presented here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, as both foolishness and wisdom, both powerless and all-powerful. And while some could look at the cross and Jesus crucified and see a pathetic and irrelevant event from history, others would look at the same cross and see Jesus crucified and think, what wisdom could have devised such a backwards yet marvelously brilliant plan to rescue humanity? Truly none but our God. God's wisdom is infinitely superior over human wisdom and understanding, so much so that it appears foolish. I, I kind of imagine it's like when you touch something that's extremely, extremely cold, and it feels like your hand is burning, like you're touching fire. His wisdom so far transcends human capacity to comprehend, it comes off as folly. It says in verse 19 that he destroys the wisdom of the wise, or people who think they're clever. And he sets aside the intelligence of the intelligent, or those who think that they're smart. So you don't need to be particularly clever, or gifted, or smart to understand the cross or better yet, to enjoy the life-giving power of the cross. It's actually, it's actually through foolishness or what the world would regard as foolish and even shameful and scandalous that God saves sinners who have come to the end of their own resources and realize that they're in desperate need of a Savior. Not only does the cross defy worldly wisdom, but it defines true wisdom. God turns convention on its head and stumps the wise who seek answers in signs or, or political power or scholarly research while they miss the fact that the greatest wonder happened on a despicable and shameful crucifix. Verse 23 says, 
we preach Christ crucified. So don't miss the gravity of this verse. Because without a cross, there's no Christ crucified. And without Jesus' death in our place, there's no hope for us. Instead, we'd all be culpable for our own sin. So here's where true wisdom begins and the wages of sin end. The cross is where the spiral of sin's mess and devastation, which began in the Garden of Eden, meets its end. There's a story I heard uh, as a high schooler that's stuck with me all these years about a church that ultimately failed to keep the cross central. And whether this church is real or it's made up, I don't know, but the story gets at the significance of Christ crucified. And it goes something like this. So once there was a church that had this inscription over its main entrance, we preach Christ crucified. And for several decades, that's exactly what the church did. But as time passed, ivy began to grow up the walls and cover up part of the inscription. Soon the sign said, we preach Christ. Unaware of what was happening on the outside, inside the church itself was undergoing a lot of change. New generations didn't like to hear messages about blood and death, and the gospel seemed just too divisive to many that they preferred to speak of God in terms of love and permissiveness with no regard for his holiness. Eventually, the name of Jesus was dropped altogether. And outside, the ivy continued to grow until the sign read, We Preach. Time continued to pass, and now ivy all but covered the front of the building. And all that could be seen of the original engraving was, We. No more preach, no more Christ, no more crucified. Both inwardly and outwardly, a powerful church had, been, had changed into a handful of folks meeting in a building that had over its entrance the epitaph, we. So what we learn from that story is that without vigilance, the default is to be swept along with the world's current. The world's wisdom can't make sense of the cross, so it'll readily abandon the message of the cross. And once you drop the message of the cross where our Savior was brutally executed for sinners like us. We lose our only hope to be restored to our Father. One commentator notes that Jesus knows Jesus as the power of God, which points to God's power to forgive sins, and Jesus also as the wisdom of God, which points to God's mastery of the problem of sin. So not only did he know how to solve the problem of sin, but he was mighty and merciful to take the punishment in our place. So let's take another look um, at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And so there's an apparent paradox in this verse. The same cross is on the one hand foolishness or folly, but on the other hand, it's the power of God. The difference, you see, is in the beholder, whether perishing or being saved. And these are both progressive states. The perishing are marching toward an eternal death. And those who, by God's grace, are being saved are straining toward a future glorification. The cross is a bright line dividing the dying and the living. When you encounter the cross, you're confronted with a crucified Messiah. Indifference is no option. You either regard the cross as pathetic and scoff at God's wisdom 
or you become a fool in the eyes of the world and, and embrace God's wisdom for you. And let's be honest, apart from God's gift of faith, we'd all, be, we'd all regard a man dying on a cross as folly. We were all at one time marching toward an eternal death. But through the cross, God has made a way for every hell-bound sinner to exchange his self-righteousness for Christ's righteousness, to lay down human wisdom for Christ's wisdom, and thereby be saved from the penalty of his sin. Even today, if you find yourself in a place where the cross makes no sense to you at all, God is calling you to explore its depths. There's, a, there's mercy for every person who comes to the cross in faith and repentance. So we who are being saved, we thank God for the wisdom and the power of the cross. We're fools in the world's estimation and we'll suffer the effects of not conforming to its patterns. We'll feel the scorn of our neighbors, even our family and our friends, who mock devotion to the cross. But to be a fool for the cross is to have wisdom that's beyond the grasp of human intellect. And we have this assurance to us who are being saved. The word of the cross is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways higher than our ways. We praise you that in your infinite, mysterious wisdom and in your boundless mercy, you appointed the shameful cross of Christ to bring salvation to us. Let us cling to the old rugged cross and intently look forward to the day when we exchange it for a crown. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. My name is Ben. I'm a member here at Bethany Baptist Church. If you could turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find that on page 1025. 2 Corinthians 5, um, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and in your Pew Bibles, it's on page 1025. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The main idea um, this evening from this passage is respond to the good news of Jesus' incomprehensible substitution for you. Again, the main idea of this passage is respond to the good news of Jesus' incomprehensible substitution for you. Our three points, if you're taking notes, are point number one, the worst news ever. Point number one, the worst news ever. Point number two, the best news ever. Point number two, the best news ever. And point number three, what's your response to the news? So point number one, the worst news ever. Point number two, the best news ever. And point number three, what's your response to the news? In this verse, we see the best news ever. But first... We have to understand why it is such good news. And in order to do that, we have to start with the worst news ever. And that's our first point, the worst news ever. In 1903, the deadliest single building fire occurred at the Iroquois Theater in Chicago, Illinois. Despite it being promoted as being absolutely 
fireproof. Here's a narrative from smithsonian.com. Audience members bolted from their seats toward what few exit doors they could find, but most were obscured by curtains. They were further impeded by gates, firmly locked to keep those in upper levels from sneaking down to pricier seats during intermissions. The terrified patrons, an estimated 1,700, with a hundred of them being standing ticket holders clogging the aisles, were funneling through a few choke points. One survivor said he saw in the upper levels a mad, animal-like stampede. Their screams, groans, and snarls. The scuffle of thousands of feet and bodies grinding against bodies, merging into a crescendo, half wail, half roar. In their haste to meet the grand opening deadlines, the Iroquois Theater compromised their standards, leading to the death of 602 people. This was horrific news. From fire codes to food safety, from customer service to material goods, we all appreciate not only having the highest of standards, but faithfulness to adhering to those high standards. When there's not a commitment to high standards, it can result in some really bad news. God has the highest of standards, the highest of standards in the universe. In fact, he is the standard. His standard is right, and him keeping to the highest standard possible is what we call righteousness. And in order to be acceptable, acceptable to God, we need righteousness. But it's not something that we have on our own. What we do have is sin. And because of our sin, we don't come close to God's standards of righteousness, and we are cursed. Romans 6.23 tells us that because of our sin, we deserve a never-ending, inescapable death in the lake of fire where we experience God's righteous, unrelenting infliction of unbearable pain and judgment on us. Jesus speaks of the same lake of fire in Matthew 13, 42, when he says that in the fiery furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of like an Iroquois theater fire. But far worse and never-ending. And this is the worst news ever. So point number one is the worst news ever. Point number two is the, is the best news ever. Point number two, the best news ever. Historically, the death penalty has taken on a lot of different forms. Firing squad, drownings, hangings, electric chair, lethal injection on a cross or in a fire. Imagine you were rightfully convicted of multiple crimes and you were sentenced by a judge, death by fire. 
perhaps in similar fashion to the historic tragedy there at the Iroquois Theater. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. But then an innocent individual stands up and agrees to take your place in the raging inferno. And in the process, you are acquitted of all of your crimes. You don't have to do anything. And the judge, he's satisfied with the settlement because someone is paying for the crimes that you committed. This offer to be your substitute miraculously turns bad news into good news. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It defies the human limitations of our logic. It is incomprehensible. So there's righteousness. It's what God has. It's what we need. We don't deserve it, but it's impossible for us to achieve it on our own. Then there's sin. It's what we have, but it's what God hates, and it's what God has to punish. God has a best news ever answer to this worst news ever. It's the fulfillment of the promise to reverse the curse pronounced in Genesis 3.16. The answer is seen here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's best news ever answer is found in his son, Jesus, the only one who adhered to God's standard of righteousness. Sinless Jesus willingly served as our substitute. He became sin for us, took our place in bearing the condemnation that we fully deserve. And we get credited with his righteousness? What was the worst news ever has suddenly switched into the best news ever. Because of Christ. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us, this offer of substitution doesn't make any sense, does it? It defies the human limitations of our logic. It is incomprehensible. So point number one is the the worst news ever. Point number two, the best news ever. And And point number three, what is your response to this news? Point number three, what is your response to this news? What is the purpose of news? To provide people with the information they need to make the best possible Um, decisions about their lives. We hear the news and it informs us. We must then decide what to do with that news and how we respond to it. So in the second half of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
It doesn't say so that in him we all become the righteousness of God. It says we might become the righteousness of God. While Christ's gift of substitution is free to everyone, it doesn't automatically make everyone free. Possessing this righteousness is a free gift to those who, one, repent from their sins, and two, believe in Christ alone. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This news here in Romans 2.4 calls us to repent and turn from our sins. What is your response? John 3.16 says that for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. This news here in John 3.16 calls us to believe in Christ alone. So what is your response? A couple application points as I close here. To our friends here who are not Christian, the best news ever of Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross calls us to respond by one, repenting, and two, believing. What is your response? If you haven't already repented of your lack of righteousness and put your faith in the sinless substitute's work on your behalf, God's best news ever is intended to get you to do just that. Repent and believe. How do you choose to respond? To the Christians here, respond to the to the best news ever by rejoicing always and repenting repeatedly. The best news ever only spreads by speaking it. Faith comes by hearing. So joyfully and boldly proclaim the best news ever. So our main idea, respond to the good news of Jesus' incomprehensible substitution for you. We first have to be informed of the worst news ever. Our first point. We then have to be informed of the best news ever, our second point. And finally, we have to decide what our response is to, to, this, um, to this great news, our third point. Hello. Uh, let's turn to the book of Galatians in the Pew Bible. It's on page 1031. So we're going to look at Galatians 1 um, and then move to Galatians 6 toward the end.
Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our salvation is not deserved and it is not earned. It is only by God's grace. Reconciliation results in peace with God and with each other. It is Jesus Christ who died on the cross who has redeemed us and through this cross who has redeemed us. This was God's plan from the beginning and it is for his glory. Paul states in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit the, again to the yoke of slavery. So in creation, then creation was created good by God. And because of our sin, now there's corruption in creation. Our relationships are corrupt. Our lives are corrupt. We're sinners and our sin has made us slaves to the world. And we make idols that we worship to replace God. Yet Christ has set us free from our slavery to the world and we are redeemed through him. We are free from Satan, we are free from sin, we are free from death because of Christ's death on the cross. This is so because Jesus Christ is God. He was born of a virgin, sinless, crucified for our sins, rose on the third day, ascended, and is coming again. Still, we are forgetful. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Paul talks to the Galatians, he states, I am amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please God? If I am still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There is only one gospel. God calls, us by, God calls us to salvation by his grace. The cross is good news. But by it we are rescued and there is no other means of salvation. Anything else claiming to be the gospel is a false teaching a twist in the scripture, and a distortion of history. It may be easier for us to detect false religions and Christian cults, but there are subtle heresies and personal misunderstandings that we may hold um, in, interpreting, in interpreting scripture um, that deceive us into thinking that we believe the gospel, but in reality, we're actually living apart from Christ. So there exist so-called gospels that may focus on prosperity, or ethnicity, or social justice. And these things in themselves may not be bad, but when they are placed in addition to or replace Christ, that's when we have a problem. Now, in the context of Galatians, the Galatians, uh, for them, it was the Jewish traditions. They have the law and Christ. Their, their salvation was based on works, their own personal works, the law, not on solely the work of Christ on the cross. So, uh, in this, we see that Paul shows concern for the Galatians. And as Christians, we too should so, show concern for our brothers and sisters and protect one another from false teachings by uh, being in line with the Spirit, by prayer with each other, and by preaching Scripture to one another 
And that could take many forms, whether Sunday service or Bible studies or city groups or uh, prayer meetings, etc. Paul also states that the false teachers, whether human or angels, are to be cursed for the corruption of God's word, which is a severe punishment. Where to not compromise, there's no compromise in terms of the gospel. The gospel is not to be catered to a certain group or ideology. It is God's word that is to be preached according to God's will. Christians are not like false teachers looking for recognition, fame, or wealth. Christians are servants of God and preach God's word for God's glory. If we look at the end of Galatians, Galatians 6, 14 through 16, Paul writes, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord, our, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard. The cross of Christ is something that should consume us. It should motivate us and satisfy us because it is our salvation that stems from God's love for us. God is visible in creation, and creation, but because of our sin, creation has been corrupted, and Paul separates himself from that evil and corruption that's in creation. He, it no longer appeals to him the things that the, the fame or success um, or even the law no longer appeal to him and they don't drag him away or from uh, the cross of Christ. So we too should no longer be influenced by the evil or distortion that's found in creation. Of greater importance, God is fully visible in Christ. God is our only master. He has redeemed us through the cross of Christ and he is our salvation. And this new creation starts with Christ. It begins with Christ on the cross and it presently continues in our sanctification and it will ultimately climax in God, Christ's return when he finally brings in, uh, finalizes the, the coming in of the kingdom of God, where we have the new heaven and new earth, this new creation in Christ, and where we will be glorified in him. So at present, we have hope because of our faith in Christ, because in Christ we are a new creation. And our idols, our sins, our traditions, our goals, our relationships, everything pales in comparison to Christ because he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He is reconciling all things to himself. Nothing has significance unless it comes from the Lord. There is no desire for worldly things because of the glory of the cross. We have victory in Christ if we hold fast to him. And in being one with Christ, we have peace because by his mercy, by his mercy he has paid our ransom. And by his grace, we are his for our joy and for his glory. Let's stand together. Jesus said in John chapter 4, we're going to sing the last two songs. Jesus said in John chapter 4, God is spirit and those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. Praise the Lord Jesus for his death and his resurrection. Mark 1, 17, the Lord is sending us out from here and he tells us this in his word. In Mark 1, 17 it says, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fish for people, or as you might know it, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The Lord has shown us his glory in the cross, his death for our sins, his resurrection. He's pressed that on us through the word read, the word preached, the word sung, the word prayed. And God is now sending us to take this word and share it with other people. That's what fishing for people is. Sharing the gospel, 
calling people to faith and repentance that they might also know Christ and then call others. So whether you're, what you're do, whatever you're doing for Saturday and Sunday this weekend before Sunday gathering, God is sending you to interact with certain people tomorrow and just know that as you're going, you're going with a message. The word of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Let's pray and dedicate our, send, our being sent off to the Lord. Father, we thank you again for your son. We thank you for his death, for our sins, that he paid our debt. He cleansed us from the crimson stain and washed us white as snow. We praise you for your Holy Spirit who applies that gospel to us, who opens our eyes, opens our heart, and grants us the gift of faith and repentance, initially in conversion and continually, as we sing and think about the cross and boast in the cross again and again and again. We pray, Father, that you would open doors for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ this weekend. We pray that you would give us eyes to see people in their need. Help us to have compassion on them. And then, Lord, we also pray that you'd open our mouths with boldness, that we might speak your gospel and take risks in our relationships. And then, Lord, we pray that you'd open up hearts, that faith would come by hearing the word of Christ, repentance would be granted, and people would be converted and begin to walk in newness of life in Christ. Father, we need your help for all these things, and so we're asking for it, because apart from you and your Son and your Holy Spirit and your words, we can do nothing. So help us, we pray. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a good night. Uh, please meet someone you haven't met before. And we'll see you Sunday at 1015 if you're coming to our gathering.